Father, we place ourselves this morning between uh, or before this staggering news. And with all our hearts, we seek to place ourselves in this story. And so as we think now about these readings, we ask that your spirit would make them come alive for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. The resurrection is typically thought about in kind of apologetic senses, that it's the, you know, the one big proof of the Christian faith. And, and while, of course, it is a powerful apologetic, I want to just help us think this morning that it's not really properly reduced to that. Meaning, sometimes I think we might, we might picture Jesus um, kind of walking past the Mount Rushmore of, you know, great religious leaders, you know, and maybe passing Muhammad just with a little cockiness, you know, saying, try that, you know. Or Confucius, hey, you couldn't pull that off, could you? Or to the Buddha, yeah, you're not quite there, are you? And uh, I, don't, I don't think it's actually like that. Though the resurrection is, of course, you know, one of, one of, if not the most thing that makes Jesus stand out amongst all the religious leaders of all time, it's not the way it was first experienced by his first friends. The resurrection was experienced by his first friends as personal presence. And this is what they were so amazed at. It, it proved something, that's true. But it would have never crossed their minds that, hey, this proves all religions wrong. This proves everybody else to be wrong. Now, here's what it would have proved to them. Though, it, though you know, one could say it proves that. But what it would have proved to them is that the new life, this radical new life that seemed to have come out from nowhere, could not be killed. That this new life that they had been seeing in their midst, that had already been present amongst them, could not be quenched by killing the body. That Jesus was not dead after all. And this would have begun to give them their first thoughts of, and when we die, we actually won't. Now that's transforming. And that gets about answering the question of, how is it this, that this little band of ragtag guys and Gals transformed all of what you think of as the Roman Empire and, you know, the whole area around the Mediterranean. How did this happen? Well, they were transformed. Not transformed by an apologetic, but transformed by a person. Because what this really meant to them is that Jesus could be relied upon. And the, the kinds he said, the kind of things he said and did reflected reality, capital R, reality. So that when he said things like, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other cheek, they realized this can be relied upon. We just watched him do this. That son of a gun, can't you just hear them thinking, you know, sitting around maybe smoking a cigar with Peter, thinking, that son of a gun just did it. He was totally silent before his accusers. They slapped him, they spit on him, they reviled him. He didn't do anything back. And look what happened. These things that Jesus has been taught, teaching us, they were thinking, these things can actually be relied upon. They actually reflect reality. They're, they're sort of indestructible. And I think what they were beginning to see is that in Jesus and in his teachings, his way of life, his mannerisms, the things that he did in showing the kingdom of God, that these were an enduring doorway into the life that God had always intended for his people. 
And this is what the psalmist is getting at. You, you may not have noticed it, but if you were to glance at, this, at the psalm in your bulletin just now, you would see that the psalmist repeatedly talks about the Lord's steadfast love. And this came up a couple times during Lent. It means God's sort of special covenant love that it endures forever, that there's a tenacity, a persistence, there's a kindness, there's a faithfulness and mercy in God's love, and that it shows up. And they saw it showing up in what had happened to Jesus. That when it looked like all was going to fail, there was some tenacious love of God and a power bound to it that made this great reversal happen. So now with that maybe sitting in the back of your mind, uh, hear, hear a paraphrase of John 3.16. The God's unique care for humanity was so great that he sent his unique son among us so that those who count on him, you know, those who can see that wow, what he's been expressing really does represent reality, so that those who count on him might not lead a futile and failing existence, but would have within them the undying life of God himself. That's what they were experiencing, the undying life of God himself in Jesus was the life that they were now caught up in. As Dennis said to us last night, it's not so much us asking Jesus to come into our life as it is us placing ourselves in this undying life of God that's made manifest to us in Christ. And these guys were now seeing the possibility of doing that. They were recognizing that Jesus was a word from a different reality, that he was a word, and that that word was now remaining among them, and that God's desire was that we would live in that word, that revelation of himself, Jesus. And if you just think now about what we saw in the New Testament, it begins to make sense Luke tells us that people trampled over each other to get to Jesus. Mark and maybe a couple of the other synoptics, I forget, tell about people cutting holes in the roofs of buildings to get their sick friends to Jesus. Why? Well, they were merely responding practically to the amazing availability of God to meet present human needs, actual human needs, sickness and depression and unsalvation or whatever was going on, they were realizing that there was a reality from a different reality amongst them. And they were doing everything they could to get the life of their sick and broken friends into the life of God, who was actually meeting present needs through the actions of Jesus. So what they were seeing is that the person and works of Jesus was actually living on. Maybe in terms of ideas, just in terms of ideas, Maybe there's no greater destructive idea to our discipleship, to our formation in Christ, than the notion that Jesus is somehow far away in heaven. It's the exact opposite of what these people were experiencing. It actually does us great harm when we do not recognize that Jesus is as close to us as the oxygen we breathe. That's the kind of life that his first followers were living in. I like the way C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, our faith is not a matter of hearing what Christ said long ago and then trying to carry it out. Rather, the real son of God is at your side. And catch this sentence. He's beginning to turn you into the same kind of thing as himself. He's beginning, so to speak, to inject his kind of life and thought into you. 
beginning to turn the tin soldier into a live person. The part of you that doesn't like it, Lewis says, is the part that's still tin. So having overcome death, Jesus remains among us as a master to all who would become his apprentices. But I know what happens. Lots of us sort of protest, even if we don't really protest intellectually, in a very sort of practical day-to-day sense, we tend to protest, but I don't see him. And I, I get it. But if you stop to think with me for a minute, most of the really important things in life are invisible. Love, friendship, trust, mutual understanding, and electricity. I have a friend who's probably about 75 now, and I've kind of lost track, but he's 75-ish, and he grew up in very rural Missouri, and when he was a little boy, there was literally no electricity. But at some point, the MEC, the Missouri Electric Company, came to town, and they brought wires, and they dug holes in the ground or put poles up or whatever they did back then, and they brought these little things into their houses. These little plugs. So that a life was made available to them that they had never known. Literally a completely different kind of life that would transform night into day. And take rug beaters out of their hands and give them washers and dryers. So that with just a couple little things to do to make yourself available to that was what was real. A whole different life was available. And again, that's what Jesus' first friends were experiencing. That by making just a few arrangements in their life, they could participate in what was actually there, what was actually real, but that remains unseen. So not so much an apologetic The message of Easter is that Jesus is a constant, though invisible, presence, that you can trust this. And for any of you who might be here this morning feeling, you know, a little bit distant from God or just feeling like maybe you're not connecting real well with God just now and maybe you want to, I want you to hear this, that you cannot call upon God or Jesus and not be heard. You live in his house. This is his thing, and he is present in it. You cannot call on him and not be heard. We live in a God-bathed, God-permeated world. That's the notion of the resurrection, that in him we live and move and have our being. A uh, number of years ago, I can't remember why, I, I decided I wanted to try art. It was really dumb. I don't know why I tried. But I wanted to try, and people started talking to me about uh, using the other side of my brain, and so this friend of mine gave me this book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And so I read it, and I tried to do it, and, and, and what it said is you need to, if you can't draw the thing, draw the negative space. Do you remember that? It helped me a little bit. I started trying to draw the negative space. Well, the message of the resurrection is, there ain't any. There is no negative space. That space is now permeated by the living God. Huh, that means he's at work. 
Better watch my language, right? Just kidding. It means he's at work. It means he's at the gym. It means we live in a God-bathed world and that we can have interaction with that. That's the, that's the message of the Bible, Emmanuel, God with us. The psalmist said, I live in the presence and fullness of your joy. Hebrews tells us that God would never leave us or forsake us. The Great Commission tells us, I will be with you until the end of the age. Well, this happens because of and through the resurrection. A couple years ago, uh, Dallas Willard wrote what I think is is an important book for our postmodern world called Knowing Christ Today. And in that book, Dallas said, to know Christ in the present world is to know him in your world. See, this is not about ideology. This is not ultimately about theology. This is not ultimately about using theology or even biblical exegesis to do apologetics. I mean, that's okay. That's all good. But that's not what's fundamental here. What's fundamental here is to know the risen Christ in the present world is to know him in our actual world, the actual present life you're now living with its rhythms and routines, to live interactive with him right where you are in your daily activities. This is the spiritual life in Christ, Alice writes. Just let this shape your imagination. Jesus is, in fact, your contemporary, right? We tend to think of him as a historical figure, or this person who will come again at the last day, but what if you were to think of him as actually your colleague in kingdom stuff? That you and he were doing stuff together with dad, and that he was your contemporary in your actual life, and that, hear this, he's still about his business. Or do you think, you know, Jesus had... uh, enough of a portfolio that after the ascension, he just retired. That was good. Good little career. Only lasted about three and a half years, but I got really rich, and I just retired. Well, he's still about his business. He still has business, and he invites us into that. The invitation of Easter, then, is to, again, as Dennis said last night, to take our little lives and our little kingdoms and place them into the life and the kingdom of God. And what we find out is that as we take our life and we do that, as we enter into this great project, here's what we find. Our life is undying. As we place our routine dying life into the undying life of Jesus, we find that our life is eternal as God intended it. So here's what I propose for us, um, for those of us who are kind of this community of people trying to learn to follow Jesus for the sake of others. What about for the next seven weeks of what's known as Eastertide, as we move away from kind of the introspection of Lent, and we go through these seven weeks of Easter to Pentecost, what if we just took on this little spiritual practice for the next seven weeks to try to make ourselves fully conscious of the presence of Jesus in his world, and in us. So really conscious of the people around us who are the least, the lost, the last, the broken, not adding a bunch of busyness to your life. Just take your life as it unfolds day in and day out. Make yourself present to it so that you can see what God's doing and and then be about his business with him as an ambassador. And then what if we just, for the next seven weeks, paid attention to the 10 man? 
where his business is with us, and it's personally in and with us. So both in the world and in us, not adding a bunch of busyness, not one more thing to do. But what I commend to you for the next seven weeks is just simple attention, just really basic, simple attention that's rooted in a fondness for God. It's not rooted in neurotic self-introspection. It's not rooted in a kind of neurotic, I have to do good in the world. But what if it was just rooted in a genuine fondness for God? I really like God. And I really like his Christ. And I really like the Holy Spirit. And I really like what they're up to in the world, but, but unless I make myself present to it, I really miss it. So what I'm picturing here is something more like young lovers who, while they're in school, their mind's not there, right? They're, they have to discipline themselves to keep their mind on that which they're really fond of. But what if we ask God the next seven weeks to give us something like that so that what emerged was not some great works, but what emerged was your little boy, go with me here, girls, your little boy, I don't know, maybe you're sitting playing a game. In my days, it would have been watching TV or something, but you know, sitting there playing a game and you hear the garage door go up and you hear dad getting out the lawnmower, you hear him fired up and you run into your room, and you get your little plastic lawnmower, and you go out front, and you follow dad around, because you just love dad, and you love what he's up to, and you want to be a part of it. That's the life that presented itself in that empty tomb. And when Mary saw Jesus, read it when you go home today, it's all relational. It's not, oh, thank God, we proved those Jews wrong. You know, somebody write this down. Evidence that demands a verdict, right? No, it was, oh, thank God. The project of God in Jesus could not be thwarted, and now we feel it becoming alive in us, and this tin man, this tin woman, is becoming human as God intended it.